I want to talk with you this morning about teaching the next generation. That's probably a very poor title, but maybe you'll see what I mean in a moment. And I really have a purpose in uh, uh, two purposes in this. Talk a little bit about, in general, the idea of teaching and what's to be avoided in this. And then secondly, talking a little bit about our Bible class program here and and some things we want to get going in that with you this morning. I won't be going into a great deal of detail about that, but I do want to encourage you in this. You know, there is an old saying that I heard growing up that that the church is a, only one generation from apostasy or falling away. All it takes is a generation of untaught people, and then the next generation doesn't know where to begin or go. Now, I'm sure that preachers, especially as they approach my ancient at antiquity age here, uh, are always concerned about the next generation, but there is legitimate reason to be concerned about the next generation very often. The Bible, and I have a sermon I'm working on, I never have to finish it, on generation, because sometimes the Bible pictures the next generation as being worse off spiritually than the one that preceded it, and we usually think that. We usually think, oh, these young people today, they're terrible and going to be, everything's always worse. But the Bible also pictures that some generations are better than the one before. The generation that grew up in the wilderness after the exodus from Egypt was better than the ones that came out of Egypt by far, you see. And so it is possible for a generation to grow up that's better. I've read the other day that there is a hope that this late generation, latest generation of young people is going to be actually spiritually improved and better than some of the ones that maybe you're sitting here today. I'm just kidding. I don't know. I, I've got, I'm so old, I can't keep track of all the generations anymore. X, Y, Zs, and A, B, Cs, and LGBTQ, Q, plus. I, I can't keep track of all that stuff anymore sometimes. I gotta think through it, but, but, uh, there is always hope. And the truth is that each generation of people has characteristics, some good, some bad. The generation before mine, the World War II generation, had good and bad characteristics. I don't believe they're the greatest generation. They're the generation that got us all involved in basically moving toward an authoritarian federal government. There's a lot of bad things about the previous generation to mine, and some good things, obviously, just like the generation before that. And us baby boomers, we've got good and bad qualities to us, and so forth and so on. My brother and I were talking the other day, and I'm going to get sidetracked before we ever start. Uh, You can turn over to Deuteronomy 6 if you want while we're waiting for me to finish up here. I don't know who I was talking to. I think it was my brother. Maybe it was Judy. I don't know. Once again, when you're my age, you know, I don't know who I'm talking to half the time or if anybody's even listening. But the point is that uh, I've been around Churches of Christ now as an sentient adult for over 50 years, or like 60 years, and I've seen some changes in churches that I was associated with when I was younger and the way people are today. And there have been some big improvements. Maybe some of the old timers would think it's not an improvement, but I think there's been some big improvements. Number one that comes to mind is the generosity of Christians today as compared to the previous generation. Preachers starved. Some of them literally starved in the previous generation. And it was a struggle to get anybody to help anybody with anything almost. But today, 
My brother over in Fort Myers, I keep getting calls because people know me. Uh, some know him, some know me. I got a call last night late about a guy wanting to send money from Marshall, Arkansas to Fort Myers or help the people down there. He didn't know the people, so he, he was given my name as a reference. But I've been getting calls in the last two or three people wanting to help churches and individuals. This didn't happen years ago, not the same way it does now. Generosity. And um, that's great. Churches today have more elders than they used to have by a long shot across the country. And it's important. That, that's an extremely important thing. Uh, I think churches in the previous generation were led by strong preachers who ruled over an area almost, you know, and big shot preachers rather than elders in church, local churches, which is the way it's supposed to be. So there's been some improvements. On the other hand, uh, you know, there's a lot of divorce and drug use, sexual sins among preachers and church in churches today that either didn't exist in my youth or was hidden. I think some, I think some of both. Most likely, it didn't exist, but some of it was hidden too. So every generation has a good and a bad side to it, and and so forth. But we have a responsibility as people that are alive today. We can help the people that are coming along after us. And as I get older, this becomes something that's more important to me and really heavier on me now that I have children, grandchildren, and soon to have a great-grandchild. This is becoming heavy on me. You know, my granddaughter Erin married a man named Thornton, and they decided that they're going to name this new baby due in February William. So I'm calling him Billy Bob already. Billy Bob Thornton. That's my new great. That's my new great grandson. Huh? They they changed their mind. Oh man! Now I got to make. A, I'll still call him Billy Bob. Anyway, that's his name. Anyway, but uh, let's just take a look at Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter. So you know this passage. Many of you do. And we'll not dwell too long on it, but we could preach some sermons from just this. But this is an important passage. To the Jews, even faith, even Orthodox Jews today, this is one of the central passages in the Old Covenant. Because it is the Shema here. This is how they begin, part of these verses are how they begin every synagogue service, as I understand. And we'll come to that in a moment. But Moses says here in Deuteronomy, now this is the covenant and these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded you to, to teach you, that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over. The teaching was meant to cause them to observe them. Very important point. That you may fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, you and your son and your grandson, all the days of your life, that your days may be prolonged. So here it is, unnoticed most of the time it's read. Here's the generational thing. God said this, this law is meant for you and your son and your grandson. Many people were children. They were young people themselves. Didn't have grandsons yet. But he says this is for your grandchildren. And I often think about that as I deal with some young people and even in the hobbies I have that I try to teach them that the things that you do in your life as you're young will impact your grandchildren. I'm still involved in things that my grandparents taught me. I think I said to Judy last night something about my grandmother, who's been dead since the mid-80s, but I said something about her, how, how her life had impacted me and my brothers in a profound way down to this very hour. And now we have great-grandchildren. 
but her life and her words impacted us. And that's what this is talking about, for good. I mean, I know there's, I know some of these gangsters have grandchildren too that they're impacting in the wrong way, but no, this is for good. But he says this is who it is, and he goes on to say, therefore, hear, O Israel, Shema, hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, and you may multiply greatly, as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you, a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, this is the Shema, the red, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. The only way the word makes any difference, the only way the word of God can ever flourish is when not when it's in the pages of a book, but when that word is planted inside a human heart. Now, once the word of God is planted from the book into the heart, now it can bring forth fruit and cause flourishing, cause what God intended to happen to happen when it goes into the heart. That's why he's where he starts out with the law of Moses, even much less the new law that you love the Lord, your God, and that love for his word goes into the heart. And he says, you shall teach these things. You shall teach them diligently. Pointedly is the word idea diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up and you shall bind them as a sign in your hand. And they shall be as frontless between your eyes and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, this is this is an extremely all you parents should memorize this verse. You should read this verse. Maybe you should put this verse somewhere in your house or you're putting all the other little fancy signs you put around on refrigerators and stuff. Maybe this one should go there. Because this is the key from the Bible, even though it's in the Old Testament, about you and your responsibility as a parent and the Word of God to teach your children diligently. That means not haphazardly. The word means, as I mentioned, go pointedly. You need to make a point of this. They need to see that this is something that's very essential. I think that's the key. If you would like your children to follow the Lord, that's the key. It isn't some special thing that you say. It isn't some other special thing. Here's the thing that's the key. When your children see from day to day that what they hear in church is reflected by what they see and hear during the week, then it makes an impression on them. So they hear things in church in a lot of families, and on the way home, there's cussing and fighting in the car on the way home. That's what they see. That has more of an impact on them oftentimes than what they hear in a church building. But they will figure out as they grow whether your life, whether what you're hearing and what you say is important to you about the scriptures or God, they'll see whether that's reflected in how you talk to each other and how you deal in your business, how you deal with them. They will see this. When they see a consistency there, it'll make an impression on them. They don't always follow it. They won't always live up to it but they will notice it. That's what the diligent is, pointed. There's a reason why, I would say that there's a reason why we do things the way we do them in this house, and God's word is it. That's the reason why we do things the way we do in this house. That's what has to be the theme of your of your family. And your children need to understand that. Uh, and, and you do it when you're sitting, when you're walking, when you're lying down, when you're rising. In other words, all times of the day or night and every activity that you're involved in with your children, 
They see that God's word is there with you, and that's how you're deciding how to speak and act and what you're going to do. You shall write them as a sign on your hand. The Jews made physical phylacteries. Uh, That's okay if you want to do that, but I think the idea is they made their traditions about it when he was just telling them that when your hand reaches out to do something, the word of God should be on the hand so you only do what God's word allows. What your hand does is controlled by God. He says they should be as frontless between your eyes, like right here on your forehead. So when you look out through your eyes, you're looking through the word of God to determine what you see and also how you see it. It's not just what you're looking at, but how do you understand what you're looking at through the word of God? Everything you encounter with your eyes is controlled by God's word in and out. And then he says you shall write them. On the door, and that's where they made their phylacteries and the other things they had on the foreheads, the Pharisees. Write them on the doorposts of your house. They have a little mezuzah you put on there. You put these verses in that little mezuzah if you, uh, if you have a, if you're a Jewish person. And, uh, I bought some of these in Israel and gave them to my children to put on their house. But it's the words here, mezuzah. And, and they did that literally. What that means is, very simply, my understanding of it, more, more accurate, I think more what this is talking about is, that when you leave your house, the word of God is what you walk through on the doorpost to go out into the world. It's how, it's how you can, are going to approach the world through the work, through the fact that you're a servant of Jehovah. You're going to go out and serve the Lord and do what's right in the world when you go out. And whatever comes in your house needs to pass through the word of God. So don't let stuff in your house whether it's through a wire or over the air or wherever it is, or people in your house that will destroy what God's word is saying. Because you've written his word on the doorposts of your house. God's word is controlling it all. Your children must see that. That's what your house is about. And then he says, write on your gates. I think here he's talking about the city gates. You you should try to make sure that the, the whole city that you live in is influenced by God's word on the gates of the city. That's why the scriptures later say, uh, and there's so much more there, but we'll leave it, but in Proverbs 22, a more famous verse, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. Now, there's various interpretations of this. I think, in fact, most of the ones I hear are probably erroneous, but the, the rabbis tended to think from based on the language, and they're probably correct about this. This had to do with that you take a child given his own his or her own nature, own abilities and nature, what they are. And you train them in that way so that when they grow up, they've been shown a consistent way to live with who they are. And it's not only their temperament, but it's also their occupation and what they do. You teach them that way. I had some of my five children that the only way to get their attention was literally slap them upside the head almost. You know, that's how you had to get their attention. And they need to always be corral them, get to physically corral them to get them to go where you want them to go, and it was a, a work like that. But that's the way I had to train them. Then I had others, like Susan here, I could just go, oh, she's, you know, paralyzed with fear. <laughs> Maybe it's because she saw the way I had to treat her older, older siblings, but, but I don't know what happened, but she, now, now today that's different. She's changed, right, Brian? She's, she's changed, but no, it's, it's, yeah. but anyway, the children are different. 
You take a child like that and you're harsh with it, she can't live with that. They won't be able to live with that. It will not help them to move in life, to grow and do things in life. You let the wild one just do whatever they want, they can't function in life well. You, you don't try to take a child who has an ability in this way and force it into this trade or this business because you like it to be that way. You show them how to do the things that they need to do. Some of my boys were bookworms, more or less. Phil had the physical size. They begged him to play football and sports because he had the physical size and all that to play sports. He'd rather be in the band. His son's the same way. Philip John is bigger than Phil was, and he wants to be in the band and play the flute or the tuba. He doesn't want to play football. So what you do, force him to be on the football team because that's your dream? No. You teach the boy to follow what he can do with his ability, his temperament, you see. And so that's how they viewed this. Now that's part of being a parent. Spiritually, you see this too. You teach each child to use their gifts in a spiritual way to help the Lord's cause and what they can do. Now the Bible pictures this, moving on a little bit, in Judges 2. It pictures a generation who came into the land of Canaan, who came out of, who came out of the wilderness of Moses, whose parents had been disobedient, whose carcasses rotted in the wilderness, God said. But they had children, a whole generation of them. They came out with Moses and then Joshua, and they conquered the land of Canaan. They did what God said. They drove out the people for the most part, and they occupied the land. And then it says in Judges 2, that when all that generation had gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. He goes on to talk about that generation. Well, I'll, I'll read that moment. Notice it says that here's one generation that served God, the next generation did not know the Lord. Something happened there that they didn't know the Lord. Now, I'm the, doesn't really pass blame here, but that's not a good thing to happen. When you find this, and it says about that generation that the children of Israel then, that new generation, did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, the gods of the land. They forsook the Lord God of their fathers, Jehovah, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. Now that sounds more like the time we're living in to some degree. Generations of faithful Christians trying to serve the Lord and worship him each week and in their own lives and families, have raised a generation or two of people who are more interested in following Madonna and Howard Stern, movie stars, and whoever else, and being an Instagram model than they are about serving God. That sound about right? This is where we are. Generations of people whose families were devout Christians, now their children are involved in drugs and gangs, violence, grandchildren the same way. So you got these grandmothers trying to raise children because the, because the mothers are in jail or on drugs or got five men and whatever the case may be and whose fathers aren't anywhere to be found. This is the same, this is the situation Israel found itself in. Very similar. It isn't some strange thing that happens. Now, there are a lot of reasons why those kind of things happen. 
But like I talk to people who were raised in a broken home, it's, it's not good to be raised in a broken home. I don't care what your background is. My father was raised in a broken home in the 1930s and 40s. It wasn't good for him to do that. As I told you before, I, I honor him because he made a decision as a young man. He, his home wasn't going to be like that when he got married. He wasn't going to treat his wife like that. He didn't do that. He reversed that whole course and he, he raised up sons, treated his wife correctly and raised up sons who honor their wives. And that isn't on me. That's on my dad and my mom who taught that principle there. So you may be from a broken home. You may have had bad things happen. You may have been abused, but it doesn't have to continue down to the next generation. You're being told it does because these things are transgenerational and it's easy to learn from the next one. You're being told, you're being given the excuses that because of systemic this and systemic that, that you've got to live a certain way. You don't. You don't have to. You'll be influenced to, of course, but you can break that. And that's what this is about. God doesn't treat the generations that way, that one generation has to do this because the other generation did, good or bad. They, they do what they do. And we have, the, we have that power within us. And so they provoke God to anger against them. Now, sometimes that leads to a reversal. We'll see. We shall see in the coming years, not very many of them, I imagine, whether in this country politically and religiously, whether we have enough of what it takes to push back against all this evil. That's my question. It's not, is the Lord going to judge us? I think he's already judging us. The question is, will we push back? Are there enough people that will push back against this evil to try to stem the tide and reverse some things we see? Not just for the sake of politics, but for the sake of our children and the institutions we leave to them. Are there enough people to push back? I don't know the answer to that. I pray every day that there is enough, that there are enough people that are finally fed up with being taught, told lies and being deeper and deeper into evil continually. You see. And, and it's just time. It's just time. And now that I see all these young people in my family growing up, it, it's, uh, it's more urgent to me. And that's why God says here in Deuteronomy 6, the verse we just read, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Now, two things. Jesus says, I, I didn't put this verse on here. And Jesus is speaking of the woman at the well there. In John 4, he says to her that God is spirit. And they that, John 4, 24, God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. If you want to serve the Lord, and that's not just this public worship, that's the, that's the worship you offer in your whole life. It takes not only doing it in truth, meaning I think, meaning one way, that which is according to the truth, the will of God, could also mean truly and sincerely. In spirit may mean from the heart, or it could be according to the Spirit of God, which is the revealed word. So there's a way to understand both of those. They mean the same thing. It takes both the head and the heart to worship God properly. They have to be aligned together according to God's will. Both the head and the heart have to be aligned together with the actions. Now you see this reflected here in that verse there. He said, notice he says here, love the Lord with your heart, soul, and strength. Now then, 
in Luke 10, this young, this lawyer comes to Jesus wanting to ask this question. He was trying to trick Jesus. But he asked this question, says, uh, you know, who's my, who, who's my neighbor, more or less? And he said to him, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he kind of takes him right back to the law of Moses and says, well, you've got the law of Moses. Can't you read it? See, we, we keep looking for answers outside the scriptures. We want God to come to us individually in our day and time and give us a specific answer because we're so important. The answers written in the Bible aren't good enough for us. We want our own special answer that God tells us over breakfast or out in, out in the park or by the ocean or somewhere. We want our own special answer. Jesus didn't say that. He told this man, what does the, what does the law, what does the Bible say? And I'll wait how do you read it? You know what it says. And he said, okay. The man answers back, verse 27. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. He has, he has the idea of the mind. I think that's correct. And Jesus said, that's right. I don't know how you divide all that out. I'm not sure how to distinguish uh, the, the heart, the soul, the strength, the mind. I'm not sure how you break all of that and say, well, this is this, this is this, and this is this. There are differences. But what it means is all of you. That's what it means. You can't reserve part of yourself for yourself. All of you. Your strength is what you do. It's how you act. And your mind is how you think. And your soul and your heart are, are what there is what motivating you to do things. All these things are there. And Jesus said you've answered rightly. So how do you decide? How do you decide what to do? I, I, I'm going to stay here and we're going to uh, try to wrap this up here in just a second. But... What I've told people for years, I think I'm correct about this. I'm going to summarize what I think some of this would be in a practical way to you parents. Your, your job, and I hate to be repetitive to many of you who've heard these kind of things a hundred times. Your job is to put a line in your child's heart. That's your job. You, 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 want, you worry as a young parent, well, should it be here or here? Should I let them do this? Should I let them do that? Should they get a snack or not get a snack? Should they allow to be allowed to go to this or that? You know, all, all, I understand all that uh, anxiety and worry because I had all that. Probably still do. And I've made mistakes in all those things. But your job is to put a line in your child's heart between right and wrong, good and bad, you see. True and untrue, true and untrue. You put that line there. You teach them that there is a line, and this is generally what it is, and you point them to the source of the knowledge of that line, which is God's word, and a true understanding of that, and you point them to the fact that their life is involved in living with that line. Now, now they're, they're gonna grow up, and they're gonna walk around, they're gonna look at that line and say, eh, hey, I don't like that line there, I'm gonna go, and they're gonna, they're gonna come to the line and they say, I think I'm gonna step over here. Because as soon as, as soon as you put a line down, what do humans want to do? Go across it. I thought I should have put this up here. I saw it this week. You've seen the picture. It's at a, at a beachfront, and there's this pipe going out into the ocean, a pipe about, you know, this big around, going out into the water, some kind of sewage pipe or oil pipe or something. Big sign on the top of it, do not, do not play on the pipe. Stay away from the pipe, and the kids are just covering it up. There must be a hundred kids playing all around on top of this pipeline. With big signs everywhere, don't play on the pipeline. I have a feeling the sign is what got a lot of them to do it. Okay? Without the sign, they might not be as interested. But with the sign, they got to do it because the sign says don't do it. 
This is humans. But here's the point. Yeah, you put that line there. They may cross that line. And that's upsetting and troubling to you. But if you put the line there, there's also a God-given chance that they'll come back across that line. It may not happen today, tomorrow, or the way you think. It may happen after you're dead. But they may come back across that line because you put it there. The trouble with modern society, and what we've been talking about some of these other lessons, this metaphysical stuff I've been talking about, is that modern people want to erase the line and say there's no right or wrong, there's no truth, there's nothing that's absolute. They don't put a line. They will refuse to put a line. Don't believe this lie that your job is just let your kids grow up and then they'll decide what they want to do when they grow up. That's just giving them no line. They have no direction. Put the line in there. If they want to rebel, they will. You, they're going to be grown up and they'll pay a price. But you have put, you've done your job. You've taught them the law from your heart. From God's mind to your, through your heart to them, you put the line, showed him the statutes, showed them the statutes, and then it's up to them and their generation to do what's right. I want my children, my sons and daughters, long after I'm gone, to do what's right. Not because daddy said so, but because it's what's right to do. How do they know that? Because I pointed them in the right direction, I hope, to find out the answer to that thing. And they may say, Daddy was wrong about that. Okay, that'll suit me fine if they thought it through because God's word is right. Now, there are some wrong reasons to do things. One of them is tradition, just because we've always done it. I, I, this is all, we can't do this. And, and my own preference to what I like. That's how churches decide what they're going to do. Churches, many of you go to have gone to, you know, they just do things by their own tradition. They do things because they prefer it this way or the other. They don't really look at what God's word says about anything. Uh, uh, they uh, they do it uh, out of a sense of, um, I think I'm behind a little bit here, aren't I? Yeah. They do it out of a sense of conformity. Other people are doing it. Other churches do it, so we have to do it. People do the same thing in their families. They don't know why things are right or wrong, but they teach their, teach their children rules about different things just because... That's what their mama told them, or that's what their family always does, or we like it this way, or they want to be like all the neighbors and they want the children. You know, these are, these are not good reasons to, how to ra- ways to raise your children or for a church to operate. And there are, but there are some good reasons because things, some things are right or wrong. They're commanded by God. They're, they're, they're right or wrong. And we need to follow what's commanded. We also need to follow what's authorized meaning that it may not be commanded, but it's certainly permitted by God's will and authorized to do in your home. He does, God doesn't specify everything, but you can look at the principles he established in his word and say, this is coming in, this is staying out of our house. This is coming in, this is staying out. And then some things are just, you see, are useful to get the job done. You're trying to accomplish God's will in your family, in your home, and you need to see that some things are expedient. And, and I think that that's what... We're, we try to do here as a church with our Bible class program. Many, several years ago, I'm not sure exactly when it was, maybe seven or eight years ago. How, how many years? Has it been less than that, Judy? We, we got to spiritual, huh? 2005, maybe she's saying. We, we, we established a Bible class curriculum for our classes back here. At that time, we had 45 children here, and all the classrooms were filled. We don't have as many now, but that changes from month to month, and will change in years to come. But we we got involved in a curriculum called Our Spiritual Heritage. 
the ladies did a, just an unbelievable amount of work, and some of our deacons did at that time, to put this curriculum together, to get the materials ready, and to teach each other how to use it and teach the children. And the reason this is a good, if you've ever been in these classes, what you see on the top of the walls is a Bible timeline of all these Bible events and people, people, places, and things. And this curriculum that we use here is not about just making kids feel good, learning, learning uh, cute songs, or just coloring, doing hand stuff. It's about teaching them that the God of heaven has a plan to save man and teaching them how they ought to want to follow this God and worship only him. It's designed to teach them the whole plan of God from the beginning of the Bible all the way through over a period of a few years. It takes them through this process in different levels and ways that different age groups understand all tied together. It's very well put together, very clever, but also very sound and fundamental. And so it isn't just a matter of saying, doing something cute that kids like and basing your teaching off of the latest Hollywood movie that you can make a theme out of. It's about following the plan of the Bible of God to save man through Jesus Christ. And, and so it's important. It's an important curriculum. And we've used it here for several years. And I think over time we've seen a re some really good results in the young people that have come from this church. Not everybody's influenced the same way. But it takes a lot of work to keep that going. Now, we're supposed to start this curriculum over in January. How many months? Is that? that seemed like a long time, but it's not that long. We're supposed to start over with this curriculum at the beginning because it's run its course again. It takes so many years to go through the whole thing. And the truth is, we need some help to get this accomplished. We've got the people that were behind it. Some of them aren't here anymore. Some are. So we need people that are willing to be taught how to teach it. I don't think it's overly complex. The lessons are laid out for you. You know what you're supposed to teach, and the materials are prepared for you to teach it. We need people to teach, keep people to teach others how to teach it, and we need people to assist the teachers in, in some of these classes. So Stacy and Judy, Rita, I'm not sure who else, I'm probably leaving somebody out, are the ones that are involved right now in in overseeing this and seeing it's going, and, and Leanne has been involved in it. So if you want, what can you do? See, this is, how, this is how the elders are trying to help you as a parent. This will never take the place of you doing something at home. But these lessons are designed, I'm trying to dry it out this morning. Gary gave me water, but it's only, it's only filling up my kidneys, not helping my throat. But... We can't take the place of what you know, but these lessons here are designed each week to give your children something to bring home to do at home. And then they take it back. So it's trying to assist you in teaching your children about the scriptures. That's putting in that line that they will always remember. Those are things will be attacked, and you can be a part of it. So the church is trying to help you do that by getting you involved. And then the other thing is, that, uh, you know, as a teacher, you learn more than the students, don't you? That's the, that's the real key. So what can you do? Some of you people are, you know, way past having kids. Sorry, I can see you. You're way past having kids at home, just like me. And uh, some of you are single. You don't have any children. So what can you do? Well, you can do some things. First of all, the parents can have a plan to teach your children at home. 
So what you say and what you do make the difference in the long run, as I mentioned a moment ago. You need to have a plan. If you're not a parent yet, you need to be thinking about this. When I have a home, a wife and children, or a husband and children, we're going to have a plan to teach our children about God's Word and about, about the Bible. And, and you need to think about that kind of plan. And so you need to be taking care of these things at home every week, every day if you need to, but every week you need to prepare, do things with your children about the Scriptures. Uh, and, and as you're a parent, you can bring prepared children to Bible classes. They get stuff to take home from this curriculum. You make sure that that's done and go over it with them and prepare them so when they come to class, the teacher can teach them more about that. How to, is that right, teachers? Is that what you need? Prepare children in the classes. This is the parent's job. The church can't fix that. The teachers here can't fix that, but you can help as a parent to do that. And then, um, I think I'm behind here. Uh, you, you can learn to teach yourself. It's not overwhelmingly complex. It's beneficial to you. And you can assist our teachers, especially maybe be prepared to sometimes be a substitute. Sometimes they need assistance in the class with some of the younger teachers. And you can learn, sit in, sit in one semester, and you can learn how to do the next one. Be prepared. If you want to do it, you say, well, I don't know how. Okay, well, now, now, you know, telling somebody like me, well, I don't know how, is like you tell a salesman, well, I don't have the money. If a salesman comes to your house to sell you something, you say, well, I can't afford it. Trust me. He's already thought about five ways to help you afford that. He knows how to make you afford that. It's going to be bad for you, but he knows five ways that you can afford it. Don't ever say that. Say, I hate it. I don't like it. That's what I say. I hate it. Don't say I can't afford it. Anyway, you say, well, I don't know how to teach. Well, that's the whole point. Go and get involved in it. That's how you're going to learn it. Be an assistant. Work back there with the teachers and learn how to do this. And then, and then what you can also do, whatever age you are, you can support and encourage our Bible classes. That Sometimes that's done by money. By making sure there's enough money in the treasury to buy the things that we need to, to support our Bible classes. And you can support the children in what they do and encourage our teachers and assist when possible. These are just a few of the things in this. I want to wrap it up. I've already gone too long. Here's a New Testament passage I want to close with, with about this in Ephesians chapter 6. I'm going to have more to say about this, but we'll summarize this today. Children, he says, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. So the Bible speaks to you young people what you ought to do. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but what? Bring them up in the nurture in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, or training and admonition of the Lord. The word training there is interesting. Where it, means, it means to narrow down. Literally, it meant to narrow down. Training something is narrowing it down to what it needs to be. And that's what you do with your children. So this is your responsibility. All of us here can help the children and the young people of this church by showing them the right way, by the way we treat them, by the way we live, and by our love for the Lord, what they need to do. Thank you for listening. Hope that you will think about some of these things, the way that you can help in, in your stage of life, however that is, you can help us get this job accomplished in the next few months. We're going to close now by singing number 23, All Things Are Ready. And we'll invite you to this morning become a Christian if you're not repent of your sins and because of your belief in Christ confess his name as the Lord and then be baptized for the remission of those sins we invite you to do that all things are ready if you've thought about that 
come to the front. We'll help you with that. If you want to talk about that, you can come and talk with us about that. Or this morning, perhaps, as a Christian, you've done wrong and you want some prayer to be forgiven or you want to make right something that everybody knows about. Or perhaps you just need prayer with something you're struggling with. You've come down to the front this morning. We'll be glad to pray with you. Let's stand and sing.